0: In our bodies, be with us, bring healing and peace. We ask this in your name, Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a uh, it's a gift to be here. I'm I'm Ralph again. Thank you for the, the kind introduction, Dave. Um, you know, it's always interesting when you pulpit fill uh, for a friend, uh, and they're not there because it's almost like I have you hostage for an hour. And so, it, over the ne- course of the next few minutes. Uh, I'm going to convert you to my side. Um, and by, by the end of the sermon, you'll be Team Ralph, and there's nothing Andrew, or as I call him in my head, the Goot, uh, there's nothing he can do about it. So uh, it really is a pleasure to be here uh, to see uh, Matt, my uh, old neighbor. It's uh, a joy to, to be with you. It's actually interesting. My father-in-law, Rob Trump, wh- who, whom Jeff knows and I, maybe a few of you others, he This was his first ministry role out of Bible college 30-some years ago. Um, And uh, I just gotta say, it's a small world. So in this small world, it is a joy to be here with you. Um, This morning, I'm gonna start with uh, reading some scripture. It'll be up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter one. And you know, I'm someone who, when they read a really long passage of scripture, it's hard to not kind of nod off. And so I tend to like, you know, I just read the short little passage and then I jump into the important things, which is what I'm going to say. Uh, but I, I recently had a conversation with uh, David Bentley Hart, who is a, a Bible scholar, and he has a, a translation of the New Testament. And we were just talking about uh, what he felt was the reason why he, he was inspired to translate a, a new translation. There are so many of them. And what he said is that scripture is strange. Scripture is strange. And sometimes we have this, this uh, desire to make it really simple, to make it really comfortable and familiar to us. But there's a danger when it becomes so familiar, uh, we can kind of make it say whatever we want. It starts to lose some of its ability to, to critique us and challenge us. And so I think sometimes when we read the whole of Scripture, like a whole passage of Scripture all at once, There's some stuff in there that you just can't wrap your head around. There's just some strangeness to it, and I think that's actually really valuable. So let's uh, read, not together, I won't make you try and keep up with me. Uh, This is 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept for you in heaven, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable as tested by fire may be found, to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry asking about the person or time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance to the sufferings destined for Christ and the subsequent glory, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in regard to the things that have now been announced to you through those who brought you good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which even the angels long to look therefore prepare your minds for action discipline yourselves set all your hope on the grace that jesus christ will bring you when he is revealed like obedient children do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance instead as he who called you is holy be holy yourselves in all your conduct for it is written you shall be holy as i am holy if you invoke the father uh, as the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds Now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have a genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable but imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord endures forever. And that word is the good news that was announced to you. I uh, read a story a couple weeks ago about a shared garden in the UK. A woman just maintained uh, this space specifically for low-income and vulnerable people in her community to have access to free and healthy food. And one night, she wakes up to find that someone had broken into her garden and dumped 15 pounds of salt, killing all of the plants and making the soil unusable for future planting. This garden fed over 1,600 people for free. And someone who didn't like that perhaps they were feeding uh, many immigrants who were having a hard time in the economic downturn, or who didn't like that their profits were being taken. (laughs) People weren't buying that food from their grocery or from their gardens. They broke in and destroyed this source of sustenance. And the story is terrible. But as I read it, I I was scrolling through the comments, just people kind of lamenting how how terrible this this story was. There was a comment that just struck a a nerve with me. Someone remarked that as a society, as as a modern people, that we have lost our souls. We've lost our souls. How do you save a people who have lost their souls? Doesn't that just get right to the heart of it? Amidst all the angst and anger around the last few years around gun control and Second Amendment rights, I feel like all of us have a relative or a Facebook friend who just goes a little bit extra. For me, there was a, a mentor and a role model for me as a kid who in the last five years uh, has really been sucked into the those dark spaces on social media, the hyper-libertarian impulses, especially around the right to to bear arms, that any act of regulation is, is tyranny. A few years ago, a couple of his kids were home alone. They heard a noise that scared them, and they ran to unlock the gun cabinet, and in the process, one of the guns went off and lodged in her back. And she survived. She's doing well. But it was centimeters from her spine. Centimeters from permanent paralysis. Centimeters from death. But his rhetoric never changed. That pivotal moment, that thing that could have been like, okay, maybe, maybe there's more going on here to this story. Instead, he doubled down. His posture and attitude Completely unchanged. We've lost our souls. I have a friend who lives in Tacoma. He recently moved there from Chicago. And for the most part, it's been a good fit for him. He said that, uh, you know, most of the, the culture feels uh, you know, right for him. But there was this thing that he couldn't wrap his, his mind around that was going on in this community that he moved into. You know, he came from Chicago, where people aren't particularly kind to anyone, let alone the poor or or the homeless. But in Tacoma, there was this different problem. In Tacoma, people were nice. In Tacoma, people would try and build policy that maybe helped the homeless. And if you asked anyone of their political leanings, they would say, oh, we want people to have access to housing and health care and, and all these sorts of things. You know, it's a very progressive town. But when they talk about the actual people in their town who are homeless, the language is vile. They're spoken of as vermin, things to be eradicated, to be dealt with, not humans to be helped or just acknowledged as human. There was this polite hatred of the human beings whose presence brought down their property values. So, for, for my friend, there was this, this disconnect because politically and culturally, this place should have been a haven for the disenfranchised, but instead, there was this gross dehumanization this gross hypocrisy that was treated just as normal. We've lost our souls. How do you save a people who have lost their souls? And so when we read a phrase like First Peter, verses 8 and 9, if we can take it out of the, the context of clean, sterile, abstract theology... If we can pull it out of comfortable scripture study and look at the very real sense of soullessness in our world, it starts to hit a little differently. We rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. We're receiving the salvation of our souls. What's ironic about a passage like this is that it's often the saving souls is read as, uh, through this escapist lens. Like, if you just believe in Jesus, you can get out of this terrible, messy world when you die. But again, when we read it, both in the context of the passage, but also in the context of our world, this is so useless. It misses... The, the the passage, but it also misses the need for us, even us as Christians, to have our souls saved. Every day we live in a soul-sucking, soul-killing world. Every day we need our souls saved so that we don't sink into the mire of soulless behavior that we see spreading like a plague in our world. And yes, often especially. In the church. We've lost our souls. How do you save a church that has lost its soul? And I think here Peter offers us a remedy. First Peter offers us something not that's just a future-proof thing so our souls can be guarded into the afterlife, but something now. Our souls need saving now. Something that to answer those questions that haunt the comment sections under our news. How do you save a people who have lost their souls? And here in Peter, I find uh, four solutions. And they're they're four familiar words. But just like as we were reading scripture, we need to to make them strange. Peter's first solution for our soulless condition... Is faith. It is faith. We are receiving the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Faith, a familiar word, right? The, the bedrock of Christianity in many ways. But faith in the New Testament is not about believing certain doctrines intellectually or praying a certain prayer, or having an emotional connection. The word faith, pistis in Greek, is synonymous with trust. It's more like the word allegiance. It's more like the word loyalty. So Peter says that it's our allegiance, our committed trust, our loyalty to the way and the work of Jesus. That is what helps our lost souls find their way home. And again, allegiance, it doesn't just mean an abstract idea, it means living it out. Living out the pattern of life that we see in Jesus. As we read the Gospels, we find in Jesus what Howard Thurman calls the religion of Jesus. And he contrasts this with the religion about Jesus. But if you actually look at the life Jesus lived, we find his religion, what he actually practiced... It's a set of practices that Thurman calls for those with their backs against the wall. It's a soul-saving way of life for those who are living as outcasts and exiles in society. It's a way of life defined by the self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love of Christ that we see demonstrated most fully on the cross. So let me put it this way, faith that leads to the saving of our souls, our lost souls that need to be brought home, that sort of faith is the daily practice of living in alignment with the way of the cross. Another word for this is cruciformity, to shape your lives after the image, the shape of the cross. And we use a word like faith to describe this because living the way of the cross in a soul-crucifying world is difficult. So difficult we need a liturgical word for it. And that word is faith. Solution number one is faith. The second solution that Peter gives for us is holiness. If we look in verse 13... Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Be clear-minded is another way to say that. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy. For I am holy. Peter's second solution is holiness. But I want to be clear that this is uh, not the sort of holiness that we find in pop culture, that we find in bestseller theology, and that's thanks in large part to Americans, America's Puritan history. Instead, this holiness, again, is far stranger and more valuable. So b- biblical holiness despite what it might feel like on the surface, it's not actually primarily concerned with being good, or being moral, or upright, and with an extra emphasis on sexual purity. These are actually secondary, not wrong, but not actually the point. Holiness is about distinction. It's about a unique, peculiar community that presents an active alternative to the soulless way of life that we find in every culture in every society throughout time. It's about being a unique, peculiar community presenting an alternative to the soulless way of life that we find in our world. The the word holiness in our tradition originates with the people of Israel. God calling them to live out a strange way of life in a foreign land, (laughs) a way of life that often makes Israel look ridiculous to their neighbors. And some of these are actually moral imperatives, right? God presenting in the people of Israel a moral vision, the Ten Commandments, the year of Jubilee, the forbidding of interest-laden debt. But some were not. There were odd ritual codes, rules on fabrics and relationships. And these had to do not with moral qualms, but an effort to make Israel distinct. And there's, there's some more, if you're interested and you want to get a little nerdy, you could read a scholar like uh, Jacob Milgram, who has, uh, who reads this idea, the idea of purity in ancient Israel as a f- almost like a scientific, an ancient chemistry uh, that involved blood and life force, um, and we don't have time to delve into that today, but it's very fascinating if you uh, want to look into that some more. But the lesson from Israel is that holiness is a vocation. It is a job. It is a role. It is a calling. We are the chosen people of God, God's elect. But that's not chosen And then everyone else is dumped in the bin. No, we are chosen for the rest of the world. We are chosen to be a light to the nations. We are chosen to draw all of humanity into God's vision of love and justice. We are chosen to participate in God's new creation. That is what holiness means. To say it another way, in 1 Peter, holiness is an active, disciplined, clear-minded responsibility. A vocation of living out the way of Christ in the midst of exile. Holiness is not about abstaining from immoral things, but living as a distinct model of what God's in-breaking kingdom is like. So let me, let me say this a different way. God is taking the world somewhere. There's a vision, and we find hints of this all throughout Scripture, of where God is taking the world. A place where all souls are whole and healed, where everything is made right. And the church's job, in the midst of God doing this thing in the world, is holiness. Holiness. It's a job description to model here in the present in this foreign land where things are not all made right. But we're to model that future world right now. We're to model a place where peace and interdependence and diversity and radical generosity and self-giving love define our community. That's where God's taking the whole world. But right now, we're supposed to model that. And in some way... This is actually one of the great mysteries that we find that the angels here in 1 Peter are longing to look into, is somehow us living this distinct life, God uses that as a way to bring about new creation. The photo at the back of these slides here, um, it's uh, from an artist named Kyle Ragsdale, and it's one of my favorites. And you can actually go see it. It's hanging in the, the Gray House lobby. It's a coffee shop in, uh, on Purdue's campus. And to me, this, this is an image of exile. It's an image of holiness, of a particular, peculiar community bringing their diverse gifts into the hope of something new. And that's holiness, moving together on a pilgrimage, a journey towards God's new creation. Stanley Harawas defines holiness like this. Holiness is making the church the church, and the world the world. Making the church actually something distinct. And this is not actually to condemn the world, just as Jesus says, I don't come to condemn the world, but to offer something new. This is not saying that we can't participate in anything in culture or that we're above others, which, you know, this word holiness is sometimes used as an excuse for exclusion and judgment. Instead, a commitment to holiness is the process of offering the world something new. Offer the world something distinct, a counter-narrative, an alternative story to the one that's being told In a soulless world. Our story sounds something like this, that love is the source of all, and that faith in the God of that love orients our life toward justice and compassion. That it sustains us in the midst of suffering instead of trying to take a path around it. That inspires us to bear one another's burdens and to create a space where all voices are heard so that truth has a chance to flourish that's the sort of distinct that we're called to create. That is holiness. When the world is the world and the church is the church and we're committed on this journey together, then we can actually open a dialogue and invite the world into a place where lost souls can be resurrected. Holiness. The third solution that we find in First Peter is hope. Peter insists that a soulless world is a hopeless world. We have to refuse time and time again, refuse to let hope die. Verse 13, set all your hope on the grace that Christ will bring you so that your faith and hope are set on God verse 21. You know, it's only from a place of hopelessness, a place where no alternative reality is possible, that this state of things is all that could be. It's only from that place of hopelessness that you could be convinced that destroying a free source of food for a community is a good idea. Only from a place of hopelessness could you be convinced that the most true thing about the homeless in your community is that they bring down your property values. Only a hopeless world could believe that. Only hopelessness permits a soulless world. And Peter's language here is very active. It's not something you happen upon. Like today, I was talking to Matt that I hope this week... I don't have to mow twice. <laughs> it's not looking likely. The, the, that the most true thing uh, that we could hope for is, uh, you know, having to do with, with food or, or uh, something you desire to have happen. Hope is active. He says, set all your hope. Set your hope, all of it, on the idea that God's world, God's gracious new creation, will come to be. Set all your hope. Hope is our refusal to let the systems of darkness and domination have the last word. Don't give darkness the last word. For the sake of our souls, Set our hope on God's world. Hope. And the last piece here from First Peter is his insistence that love is the expression of a healthy soul. Verse 22, Now that you've purified your souls and your obedience to the truth, that you have this genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply from the heart. A pure soul, a healthy soul, is characterized by genuine mutual love expressed from the depths of the heart. So here's the final remedy from Peter for surviving an exilic wasteland with our souls intact. Be open in the depths of your soul to all of the connections in your life. Be open in your depths. In other words, don't shortchange your relationships. Don't skate through your friendships and your relationships with coworkers and family and neighbors. Don't waste those opportunities. God is in those connections. Part of the soullessness of our modern world is that we believe a lie. And the lie, which did not exist for the majority of history. It's only been around for a couple hundred years. The lie is that we are primarily individuals who happen to have relationships. That is the lie, that we are primarily individuals who also have relationships. This is false. We do not find this in the Bible anywhere. We do not find this throughout all of Christian history until the last couple hundred years. And scientifically, it's meaningless. We are instead a complex web of relationships who, yes, We have agency as individual persons, and we have value as as personal souls, but we have no meaning apart from our relationships, apart from our communities. I am because we are. And a world that ignores the deep connections with neighbor and family and river and bear and seed and soil and brother and sister and friend, our soul without those connections, Becomes fragile. We dare not sever those ties because we are intimately connected, and a healthy soul demands that we tend to those connections. We are intimately connected, and a healthy soul demands that we tend to those connections. What does that mean? It means that being a good friend, being a compassionate listener, being a neighbor who's present, being a wise mother, a tender gardener, a soulful kayaker, a brother to earth and soil and creature, these are often the most spiritual practices that we can pursue. Because as we do them, we are being open in our depths to love. Peter implores us, love one another deeply from the heart. So if if we look around, we see a world that has lost its soul. We see a church that has lost its soul. And I don't know about you, but I'm constantly doing things to try and manage the problems that come from that situation. We form charities, and we try out politics, and we rail against the broken systems, but we keep bumping up against that question that haunts the comment sections. How do you save a people who have lost their souls? You can do all this work, but how do you save a people who have lost their souls? And this is actually what Dr. King was lamenting when he talked about the difficult work of activism. Law can restrain the heartless, but it cannot change the heart. But we should still do this work because you can mitigate suffering. You can put some parameters around it using laws and policies, and you can create social nets to catch people. But if you leave the soul unaddressed, if we forget that we actually have a vocation to tend to the souls, in our world, then we'll actually miss one of the primary methods that God is using, not just to tinker with the problems, but to bring something radically new into our midst. And this is what Peter is going on about. This is what he names as an indescribable and glorious joy. Our souls can be saved. We may have lost them, but they can be resurrected. And so, each day, we must seek the well-being of our souls. Through faith, the daily practice of living in alignment, loyalty to the way of the cross. Faith that that way, the self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love, faith is saying, I actually do believe that living that way is what God desires. Uh, Whether it looks successful or not, that is faith. Through holiness, the vocation of living out this distinctness, a pattern that we find in Christ, living that out in the midst of all these other stories in our world. Hope, the refusal to let evil systems have the last word. And love, a radical openness to deep connection. I'd like to just sit for a moment in, in, in silence as we let any invitation from the Lord kind of sink into our, into our depths. Lord, thank you that you have practices and ways and care and the power of your spirit to to bring our lost souls back to life would you make a clear invitation to each one of us today how do we live this out and and to this church community as a whole what does it look like to be a distinct community you can't do that on your own so I just want to pray a prayer of blessing on this community that you would help them to live out that holy, distinct life. A life that is soul-saving in this city. There would be a light and a life here in, in and amongst this community that is contagious for the neighbors, for <laughs> the river here, Brother Wabash, that draws all people into this life-giving, soul-saving world, this new creation you are bringing into our midst. We ask all this in your name, amen. I'd like to ask Dave to to come up for an invitation to connect. It's time for invitation to connect. If you're watching um, online, you can connect with us at FCCLafayette.org, via Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. If you're joining us for the first time, we welcome you. Please let us know if you would like to be contacted or if you are in need of prayers so that someone can reach out to you. Would you please stand for our hymn of invitation? Together, we sing together, speak, O Lord. We've sung this song for an entire months on end as part of our year of discernment. Let us speak to us. Let it speak to us so that we hear what God is saying.